Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Angus Reid from the Angus Reid Institute on national polling on the October 21st federal election. Right now, the Conservatives are leading the Liberals 38 to 32 percent, according to Angus Reid. Also, the Canadian Pain Task Force co-chair Maria Hudspeth spoke to us about pain patients and what's available and what isn't. Innocence Canada, Ronald Dalton spent nine years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He's also the co-president of Innocence Canada, which turns out to be the final hope for individuals who've been wrongly convicted in this country. You'll hear Ronald Dalton talk about Innocence Canada. Also, murders on the Danforth. One year ago tomorrow, Karen Lieberman from Global Television Toronto and murders on the Alaska Highway from Global British Columbia. We'll get that story and... Ready for the first billion dollar, billion dollar player lawsuit against a team the player used to play for? Daniel Lust is a sports lawyer in the United States. He laid all of that out. That's all coming up. We're going to speak right now with uh, Angus Reed, the chairman of the Angus Reed Institute, joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Not for profit, not for profit polling organizations. Too many P's. Angus, it's been a long time. Good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Roy, Roy, good to talk to you. So I had to, I I resisted, but I had to look it up. I had no idea what Sisyphean meant. (laughs) Well, I have a colleague of mine who has, uh, who liked to use very, very big words. So uh, Sisyphean, Sisyphean apparently was one of the uh, Greek uh, gods or one of the people in Greek hell who, uh, Kept on rolling a ball up the hill, but the hill, you know, the ball kept rolling back on him. Apparently, I'm not an expert on Greek mythology. See, I didn't even know how to pronounce it because it's Sisyphean, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I said Sisyphean. So the headline was: Federal politics, CBC, a CPC lead holds, but as liberals begin to climb, will their task be simple or Sisyphean? From the Angus Reid Institute. All right. So the CPC, the Conservative Party, leads three months out to the day to the day we vote, Angus. What does that mean at this point? Well, you know, it's, uh, look, it's, these elections these days are always volatile. It's very hard to, to exactly predict what the electorate's going to do three months from now. I mean, there's, I think there's some underlying trends that uh, are beginning to take shape here. One of them is that the conservative support base looks to be around 36 to 38 percent of Canadians, obviously quite high in Western Canada. Uh, lower in Atlantic Canada and Quebec, competitive in Ontario. But that that base looks like it's pretty strong, pr- pretty pretty solid. It's it's not a majority. I mean, it leaves uh, somewhere 60, 62% of Canadians elsewhere. But but that base looks pretty secure. I think that the, the interesting story in many ways isn't so much sheer, although we can come back to them later if you want. It is, it's this dynamic between the Liberals, the Greens, and the NDP. Pardon the pun. Uh, but you know the uh, uh, the truth is that 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, of elbow work going on between the leaders of those three parties in terms of looking at what you could call the center left or liberal left vote, and this is the challenge that uh, that Justin Trudeau has is how does he how does he bring over all of these particularly young voters who are very attracted to Elizabeth May or who, well, they may not be particularly attracted to Jagmeet Singh, are NDP voters. So 
this is this is in many ways where the big action is and uh, frankly what we're looking at even a little bit more than the shear story because because shear's base as i say looks like it's very solid right. it's, he seems to uh, be at the top i mean i can't see him moving much more beyond that he, he has one good thing going for him which is there's a massive age difference the 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 conservative party support in canada is generally older and these are people who are more likely to vote so i mean i think that uh you know i think that that there is a bit of an edge for Shear heading into the next election although as you said at the outset a lot of people don't really know who andrew Shear is and he could always misspeak, screw up, or otherwise make some mistakes as we get closer to the election day. Thirty-eight percent is starting to approach majority government territory. You know, it, well, it really depends on it. Really depends on distribution. You see, he's so strong in Western Canada, particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and to some extent Manitoba, that there's a lot of wasted votes there. I mean, you know, I, I, it, I you. it was laughable yeah. to have the prime minister in Calgary last week claiming that, you know, the Liberals were going to pick up support in Alberta. I mean, I would be surprised if the Liberals win a single seat in Alberta and Saskatchewan. The level of the level of Trudeau hatred in that part of Western Canada is almost legendary. Uh, I think that it, it really is going to come down to, uh, you know, what's happening in Ontario, and particularly uh, what's going to happen in that sort of 905 uh, region around Toronto, which has always been competitive, and that's where... That's where you have, uh, you know, you've, you know, we had Trudeau a few weeks ago issuing an apology to the Italian-Canadian community. I mean, there'll be, there'll be every bit of ethnic politics played over the next three months that, you know, take what we've seen over the last 20 years and amplify it by 10 because people are looking for immigrant communities, particularly the liberals, which, you know, could have the effect of helping save their bacon as they look for a second term. So Ontario is uh, a legitimate battleground. I know people in Western Canada are going to say, not again. Ontario is going to decide for the rest of the country. They're going to decide for us. We don't want it. We don't like it. I'll be hearing, getting emails from people saying we want out of Canada if Ontario is going to be making the decision for us for the rest, for the next four years. So how much of a battleground is Ontario and which way is the larger population area in the general, in the greater Toronto region, where is it leaning? Well, you know, it's interesting. And of course, you know, we, uh, you know, a national sample, this most recent poll we did is a national sample of about 2,200 Canadians, and even with that, we can only get a bit of a finger in the wind when we begin to break that down to subregions. But every time we look at Ontario, I mean, 416 Toronto is solidly liberal. Uh, we don't see any changes there whatsoever. I mean, it looks like a real liberal bastion. When you move into 905 and East and 905 West, that's where things are, are much more fluid. It's a very, very vote-rich area. A lot of MPs get elected there, and that's, that really is if you want to get to the ultimate battleground where we think it's going to be. If you look at southwestern Ontario, it's leaning conservative, move north, leaning conservative. So you, to some extent, southwest and north kind of almost offset what's happening in 416. So, uh, you know, Ottawa and that area, I think, is a little fluid right now. But, but the, real, the real issue is going to be, uh, I, you know, I think 905. And, you know, look, there's about 110 seats in western candidates, and I live in western Canada. I live in Vancouver, so... I know the complaints, and I've lived them all my career. But frankly, Western Canada continues to get more seats, and I don't think it's going to be completely decided in Ontario. I mean, the Liberals are going to have to pick up some seats in Manitoba, where they've got a bit of a chance, and they've got to be able to swing through BC. Interestingly enough, we've got some very big announcements being made now: a brand new uh, building, a brand new federal building in Surrey, British Columbia. So you know. 
the pork is going to begin, if I can use that term, I mean, the kind of uh, spending levels that we're going to see in Vancouver, I think, are indicative of the fact that the Liberals are going to have to win some seats in British Columbia if they're going to form a majority government. Let me ask you this question. This has been making the rounds for the last 24, 36 hours, and that is that Gerald Butts is back somehow in the decision-making process, or at least the advis- in an advisory position for the upcoming election for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. He left. He resigned during the middle of that live scam issue. And there's still this lingering, let Jody speak. I want to hear Jody Wilson-Raybould say what she yeah. wanted to say. I want to hear Jane Philpott say what she felt she should say. I'm just wondering, two couple of things here. How will a, any kind of return by Gerald Butts affect voters? And secondly, do you think that Lavscam and Jody Wilson-Raybould has the potential to, uh, to be a real stumbling block for the liberals as we head closer to October the 21st? Well, I think, first of all, in butts, I mean, I think that's a lot of inside baseball. And I think there's a lot of people kind of drinking their own bathwater in this. Most Canadians don't know who Jerry Butts is. They don't much care. Uh, you know, the fact that he left, I think, did create a bit of a stain around the Trudeau government. Uh, why did he leave? I think the media can pick that up and maybe, you know, try to turn this into a bigger story. But I, I just can't see it being the, the kind of uh, story that is going to be that important, particularly to swing voters. And remember that what happened as a result of the whole SNC-Lavalin issue, et cetera, was that, was that a lot of people who really didn't like Trudeau even didn't like him more. I mean, the level of distaste for Trudeau, particularly among conservative voters, is massive. It, it, it indeed, it, it reminds me a little bit, when I looked at some of our numbers, we asked people, are you voting for this party? After they told, told us who they were you know, hoping or planning to vote for, are you voting for them because you really like them or because you really don't like someone else? In the case of the conservatives, it almost reminds me a little bit of uh, what we saw in the last U.S. election campaign. Forty-five percent of conservative voters are voting for the conservatives because they hate another party. And guess what that party is? It's Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, uh, the people, the, the side of the aisle, the camp that doesn't like Trudeau, just has their positions continually reinforced with all of this stuff. But they are, they are very committed voters. When we ask people about, you know, how strong, you know, how strong is your commitment? Are you a soft voter? Are you, or have you really made up your mind? I mean, the conservatives are over the top in terms of saying we have made up our mind. So all, all of this sort of plays into a very important segment of Canadian society, but I don't think it's going to move a lot of Green or NDP or even undecided voters over to the conservative camp. Interesting so, point, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think yeah. it's as big an issue as perhaps some people would make it up. Angus Reid, please hold on. We're going to come back. And one of the things I want to talk to Mr. Reid about is the issues, where Canadians place the issues in order of importance. Normally, if there is such a thing in a federal election, you'd hear the economy, number one, health care, number two, taxes, Number three, any sort of minor shift within those three. Those would be the expected one, two, and three issues. Not this time, not according to the Angus Reid Institute polling of Canadians for the federal election. We'll be voting in three months from today. We're with Angus Reid, the chair of the Angus Reid Institute, not-for-profit polling organization. The headline is Federal Politics, CPC Lead Holds. That's Conservative Party of Canada. But as liberals begin to climb, will their task be simple or Sisypian? That's a word I'm going to use many. I'm going to get a personalized license plate that says Sisypian. So, anyway, 
I thought that was funny. Angus, uh, when, when we look at the when we look at the issues that matter. So here, here I'm a I'm a guy who's done covered so many elections. You've covered so many elections. I've sat in the anchor's chair for for election night coverages. And normally, what I would expect is the top three issues are would be in some one order or another: economy, health, and taxes. It's not what you found. Yeah, well, and if, well, first of all, what we found varies a little bit across the country. Uh, but let you know, let's start with the headline. Sure. The most important issue right now nationally is climate change. Interestingly enough, thirty-three percent of Canadians saying, "Look at that." You know, we we ask people to pick what for them was the two most important issues. So. Oh, the one that was picked the most often, uh, either one or two, was climate change. And that was, uh, that was followed by health care, uh, then the deficit, income inequality, poverty, housing affordability. Economy, actually, quite far down the list at only 14%, and taxes way down at only 10%. So, you know, uh, I think this, this issue list has to be, though, chopped up a little bit by region, because when you get to a place like Alberta, economy and energy and natural resources dominate their concerns when you get to a place like british columbia environment and housing affordability dominate the list now uh, in ontario uh... the top two are uh, our climate change and health care which tends to also be the trend in quebec and atlantic canada so it is a different list I, I think this is the first time i've seen an election where climate change has been number one and, you know, my, my friends uh, in Toronto who tell me about the very, very uh, hot weather they've had recently, I think, you know, I think this is driving home to a lot of people that there is a big problem out there. Now, interestingly enough, when we look at this by political party support, Conservative Party of Canada supporters don't have uh, climate change at the, at the top of their list. Only 8% of them mention climate change. Therefore, I'm far more interested in the deficit in economy and immigration. So... Really, depending on which segment of the population you're, ta- you're, you know, you're speaking to or looking at, uh, the issue list is a bit different. But the two at the top, particularly climate change, is interesting because this represents a real challenge for Mr. Trudeau, who, on the one hand, you know, has banned uh, oil tankers on uh, much of the west coast of the country, while on the other hand owns Trans Mountain, which is going to ship oil there. So. You know, this this leaves uh, a very uh, wide avenue for both the NDP and particularly the Greens to be competitive with uh, Mr. Trudeau and his party. Do we have any sense of what percentage of Canadians will, in fact, vote? Well, you know, that that I think is the the biggest question these days. And you know, in, early in my career, which goes back about fifty years, you know, we used to have seventy-five percent of Canadians voting. Now. That number will get down into the mid-50s, uh, 60% range. The real issue on who votes, though, is, is the issue of, of age. Older Canadians, people over 55, have fairly massive turnouts, over 75%. Younger Canadians, millennials under 35, historically have had uh, turnout levels, if you look back over the last 20 years, of, of, uh, of under 50%. Now, the last election was really interesting because... The combination, I think, of hatred of Stephen Harper and, and Trudeau-mania, particularly, I think, around you know, marijuana and some of his other social issues, brought a lot more young Canadians to the polling booth. We estimate that the number of additional voters that came on stream last election in 2015 was about 1.2 million. And really the question is, is Trudeau and are the non-conservative parties going to be able to mobilize their respective bases in the same way that happened in 2015. 
And this is an issue that Shear doesn't have to worry about because he does not have a lot of support among younger Canadians. All right, so if we look at the situation as it exists now, the numbers that your polling shows, if it turns out that way on the night of the 21st of October, we have a minority conservative government? Yeah, I think I think the odds are we would have a conservative government depending on how the votes split. Uh, and it's really going to, to me, it's going to, Depending on what happens in this uh, race between the Liberals, the Greens, and the NDP, yeah. I mean, the, the the single most important thing that's happening today is that Trudeau is really trying to bait Andrew Scheer on social issues, whether it's it's gays, abortion, LBGQ. I mean, uh, 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 you know, this conversion issue that that's been in the news lately. I mean, he is really trying to uh, tag. Sheer as a very right-wing social reactionary who's going to, you know, bring back abortion legislation, etc. And he's doing that because he wants to be seen as the leader of the anti-Sheer movement and bring these Green and and NDP supporters into his camp. That, that is what he's okay. going to do in order to win. So we'll watch very carefully what the, the dynamic between the Liberals, the NDP, and the Greens. I noticed Trudeau attacking the NDP the other day, and I thought, well, that's a bit of a change. Angus, yeah, it's great. Well, no, it's, it's going to be, I mean, look, he is yeah. going to be, he, uh, the, the Liberal strategy must be to demonize Scheer right. and to demonize the Conservative Party. Okay. And, and that's why we have, you know, in Ontario, a lot of emphasis on Doug Ford, which is a whole other issue we could talk about for a long time, but this this attempt by the Liberals, and we'll see if it's successful, to say, listen, voting for Scheer is like voting for Doug Ford, and Doug Ford's this terrible premier, and and, and, and this is just a taste of right, Angus, if you vote for Scheer. i got to stop it here. I thank okay. you so much for the time. Great talking to you again. It's been way too long. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Right. Angus Reed from the Angus Reed Institute, the chair of the uh, of the Angus Reed Institute nonprofit polling organization. The Canadian Pain Task Force has issued its first report. And you know we've talked a great deal about chronic pain on this program and how it specifically affects people who have just horrible lives because they're overwhelmed with 24-7 agony. And we've heard people on the air crying. We've heard people on the air talk about suicide because they have been forcibly tapered or their medications, their opiates have been just removed by doctors. I've talked to doctors who told me that they don't want to prescribe opiates because they're afraid they'll lose their licenses of the colleges of physicians and surgeons in their province may take their licenses to practice medicine away. Maria Hutspeth is the co-chair of the Canadian Pain Task Force. She's also the executive director of Pain BC. Ms. Hutspeth, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Roy. Thanks for having me. This is such an incredibly important issue because it affects millions of people, literally. Absolutely. One in five Canadians. So let's talk about, uh, I just looked at, a, just, I wish we had more time, but it's one of those days. But I, I looked at your uh, some of the highlights. There's a global consensus that chronic pain is a significant chronic disease in its own right, and as such needs concerted attention. This is not reflected in the current state in Canada. Care for chronic pain is largely dependent on where people live, and what type of insurance coverage they have. And then I look at another point. Efforts to intru- uh, to reduce the number of opioid-related overdose deaths in Canada have had significant consequences on chronic pain patients, including increased stigma and reduced access to treatment. For some patients, it's also resulted in inappropriate prescribing practices, such as abrupt stoppage of opioids or tapering without consideration of the risks associated with withdrawal 
or the medical needs of patients. Could you please address that? Sure. So I think what we've seen over the last number of years in Canada is a growing uh, concern around opioids and a growing response to what many people refer to as the opioid crisis. And I think everyone is now recognizing that uh, while there were well-intentioned efforts to address the harms of opioids for some people, uh, the pendulum has swung way too far. And we've seen negative effects on Canadians who live with pain, who are now living with more pain and suffering as a result of well-intentioned public policy. And this report is certainly naming that issue. So patients are suffering because they were prescribed opiates. Is it because you're saying because it was uh, too liberally prescribed? Or I mean, because I talk to the people well, on the other side of the spectrum who say that I'm being forcibly tapered by my doctor or I've been reduced, refused rather, my opiate prescriptions to be continued, which I arranged in consultation with my doctor because my doctor is now scared of the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Absolutely. And Roy, you and I are on the same page on that one. We're talking about uh, the harms from this pendulum swing to very restrictive kind of one-size-fits-all model of prescribing. Um, so I'm not, I'm not talking right now about the harms of opioids broadly. I'm talking about the harms of people who may be being forcibly tapered, um, tapered too rapidly, um, cut off their medications, or even what we're seeing in some cases where people have been prescribed opioids for pain from a physician. That physician retires, that physician moves, and we're seeing really discrimination against those patients where other physicians are unwilling to take on that patient because they have already been so let me ask you this. Why not issue a clear and public directive to Canadian doctors to end forced tapering and to end stoppage of the long-in-place prescribing of opiates, like morphine, a prescribing that was arrived at between the patient and the doctor? Why not, why not just send out a clear and public directive? Health Canada can do that. You know, I think my... I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience in BC um, that we've seen. You know, we've been working very actively through our organization, Pain BC, with our college there. And really through a concerted effort, our, the college in BC issued changes to the standard. So this is a legally binding standard we have in British Columbia. And that standard now says you cannot discriminate against people because they're on opioids. You cannot discriminate against people because they have chronic pain. What we're not seeing is that the practice is changing as a result of that standard. So I'm very skeptical about directives being issued and them having an effect on practice. We're seeing, even in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control, which issued the first guideline in 2016 that many other guidelines have subsequently been modeled after, they have now issued something saying you know, our policy or our guideline has been misapplied and we're not seeing or hearing about the corresponding change in practice. We all know the health system is very complex. There are lots of different people and organizations, you know, who have a role to play. And where we have seen a change in standards 
to address exactly what you are saying, we have not seen a corresponding change in practice. So I think that's the issue is what is it going to take to shift that practice? And my view is it's not just going to be a directive from the health minister. It's going to be a whole bunch of concerted effort. Right. Well, without a directive, that should be step one. And without a directive, it's not going to change, I feel, because I've talked to so many doctors. And I mean that. Over the last three years, I've talked to many doctors who've told me they're afraid. They're afraid they'll lose their licenses. Let me just read you something by Thomas Klein, uh, probably familiar with the name. American doctor, PhD. He's very active uh, on the social media scene with uh, for pain patients from a practicing physician standpoint. It's bad out there, very bad. In my 40 years, I've never seen nor imagined the magnitude of such a gross error in medical judgment. Worse, it developed under our noses and then ignored as an inconvenient truth. Until disproven, it looks like five to seven million lives have been ruined, not to mention lives ended over the past three years. So that's one doctor. And I want to just raise this point with you as well. When we talk about people who are um, victims of opioid overdose, there's quite often, as part of the argument or part of the numbers, the Included in the numbers are opioid or at least uh, drug addicts, and I'm not talking down to them. I'm just saying people who have an addiction to drugs and buy illegal drugs or drugs that have been sold uh, without proper ethical um, uh, consideration to drug dealers. But you have people who are drug addicts who are dying of opioid overdoses, and the patients are the ones who suffer because of this. Am I wrong? Um, you're saying that people who live with chronic pain are suffering as a result of the overdose crisis? Yes. Yes, I absolutely. Because I'm talking about drug addicts who die. I mean, people who are addicted to drugs, who buy drugs from drug dealers, die of opioid overdoses. But then it's it's transferred to the, to the pain patient. It becomes part of the well, I, pain patient's I, uh, picture. Yes. And, Roy, I absolutely agree with you that people who have who are living with chronic pain are being negatively impacted because I think people misunderstand the distinction between opioids for medical purposes and illicit opioids and people get those things mixed up. So absolutely, people who live with pain are being further stigmatized uh, as a result of uh, sort of the public thinking related to the overdose crisis. I think one of the things that's important to note is many people who live with substance use disorder also have chronic pain. And so we're concerned about everybody who has untreated chronic pain. We're concerned about people who have chronic pain without a substance use disorder and also concerned for people who have chronic pain and a substance use disorder. But I think the thing that I really hear from people who have been living with pain long-term, who do not have an addiction, that they are really suffering as a result of the change in this climate. I know you're talking to Angus Reid later today. We just concluded a poll with the Angus Reid Institute looking at pain in Canada, and we profiled it on your show. But what we heard in that poll, 37% of people living with pain who were polled said they could no longer get access to their medication. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely... I spoke with, uh, with Angus Reid's uh, representative, Dave Korsinski, about that poll yesterday. I just want to read this to you. This is from a pain patient. I would rather be addicted than the horrors I'm experiencing off my that meds. That we see... Well, I think we're hoping to see change 
from this directive the CDC issued in the U.S. Uh I'm a bit skeptical that we will, but we're sure hoping so. Okay, so let's you and I talk again, Ms. Hutsmith, and maybe we'll set aside more time where we can get into this issue in a more uh, broad uh, approach and look at the component parts, as you also found in that Angus Reid poll. But I appreciate you joining us on the air today. Happy to be with you and look forward to another opportunity. Thank you so much. Maria Hutspeth is the co-chair of the Canadian Pain Task Force. Looking at something online here, this is a doctor's office. In order to comply with American doctor's office, in order to comply with new CDC guidelines, this office will no longer be starting patients on chronic opiate therapy. If you're currently on chronic opiates, Norco, Percocet, Oxycodone, etc., we will begin weaning and tapering doses in upcoming visits. We will continue to provide medical care for chronic and new medical conditions. Please discuss any concerns with your physician. Doesn't sound like there's much to discuss. Uh, Barry Ulmer is the executive director of the Canadian Chronic Pain Association. He joins us, Dr. Barry, many times on this program, as we have with Marvin Ross, medical writer for HuffPost Canada, patient advocate. We've talked to, uh, as I said, Marvin many times. He joins us as well. Barry, what's your uh, what's your response to the pain task force? Uh, well, Roy, I guess I'm a bit disappointed as as I was in in the announcement of in the first place. However, it, it, what I did like was the fact that they did it finally acknowledge that chronic pain is a problem. But I was kind of disappointed in Maria's comments to you, saying now when you asked her, well, why doesn't the minister come out and make a definite statement? I mean, and then blamed it on the fact that things in the United States aren't changing. Well, of course things aren't changing because politicians like the minister will not come out and make that definitive statement that doctors have to start treating patients properly and that, and specifically say that the colleges of physicians and surgeons must stop going after them the way they have been. And, of course, nothing will ever change unless a politician in the position of the minister comes out and specifically says that. So, in, in effect, to, to us, they've just wasted the last four, five, six months by coming out with stuff that we've known for years it's out there you don't need to to put together a task force to come up with stuff that's even based still on on some erroneous studies but uh, at least they recognize chronic pain is is a problem marvin every day additional people human beings are being added to the roster of chronic pain patients who are involuntarily consigned to agony right and I get calls from people all the time. I know you do. As does Barry. So, your thoughts? Well, I'd like to step back just a bit. And the reason for a task force, and it's well known that when governments don't want to do something, or they don't know what to do, they set up a task force. And then they can say, well, the reason we're not doing anything is that we have a task force studying this problem, and we have to wait until the final report comes in in three years' time, which, frankly, is a crock. And Maria's explanation is downright insulting that the minister can't issue a directive. Of course the minister can issue a directive, because what is happening to pain patients is a violation of the Canada Health Act, in my opinion. Everybody in Canada is entitled, regardless of money or any other condition, 
to equal medical care, and chronic pain patients are not getting that care. They do point that out in the report. Yeah, but they don't, they don't offer a solution. No, the, look, the solution, uh, gentlemen, as, uh, as all three of us know, and I'm sure Ms. Hudspeth knows and everybody knows, is to provide the patients what they require to resolve their issues and not put them in a position where they're living in agony and cannot perform the most simple of daily tasks, which, are, which, which we all take for granted. Uh, we, I'm, we're going to have to, we only have a minute. I, I squeezed everything in I could today. Barry, uh, what's the website for for your group? Tell us again, please. Uh, it's www.chronicpaincanada. Okay, Chronic Pain Canada. Final thoughts, uh, Barry, give me yours. Uh, I, I think uh, people don't have three years to wait, uh, Ray. I mean, it's the suffering out there, as you know, you you hear it every day. I do. Is is just out of out of whack, and yeah. and the minister has to come back and 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 make a definitive statement. And when guys like Dr. Klein come out and make the statement he that he has made, the worst he's seen in forty years, yeah. that tells you something right there. Okay, uh, twenty seconds, Marvin. Um. Frankly, uh, this is a violation of the Declaration of Helsinki ethical principles that was signed by all countries involved with the World Medical Association Okay. in that you must not do harm to your patients. Sounds like the Hippocratic Oath to me. Yeah, well, this is, you know, a legal document all countries signed as a result of what happened in concentration. Okay, I have to go. Marvin, thank you very much. Marvin Ross and Barry Ulmer. And chronicpaincanada.com is the webpage. Now, we've spoken over the last couple of weeks about the issue of wrongful conviction in this country. And uh, two weeks ago, it was Glenn Assoon, 17 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. This week, Dennis Oland was... Um, was declared not guilty of killing his father. I spoke yesterday with David Milgard, who spent 23 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And joining us uh, back on the program with us is Ronald Dalton. Mr. Dalton is the co-president of Innocence Canada. Ron, thank you very much for the time. You know, here we have, it's Glenisoon, Dennis Oland, David Milgard, you, four murder convictions alone, a total of almost 60 years of imprisonment, Unjustly, that should alarm everyone in this country, and as we've been saying, it could have been anyone. How do you personally view the issue of wrongfully being convicted and imprisoned? Is it a justice system accident or the result of a deeply flawed system of determined guilt or innocence? Well, Roy, uh, good afternoon. I I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think we have one of the best justice systems in the world, but it's not a perfect system. And in this country, as all others, you're not entitled to a perfect trial. You hope to get a fair trial. And in a fair trial, mistakes get made. Uh, In the Olin case, for example, he was convicted at the first trial, spent, I think, 10 months in prison. His appeal went through, and the conviction was overturned. Then on retrial, he he was acquitted. Right which is the way the system is supposed to work. Which is the way it's supposed uh, many, to work. Many of our clients, and, and myself included now, have lost their appeals and, uh, and found themselves uh, in, in the situation where they've been wrongly convicted and it's taken years to, to overturn those mistakes. See, when you and I spoke, I particularly uh, remember you talking about the first two lawyers who were supposed to work on an appeal for you and nothing happened. 
And then you had the third lawyer who got it going, and very quickly, the error, or you know, within justice system term uh, time frame, the error was discovered, uh, understood, and your case moved forward, and then you were found, you were exonerated. So I was thinking about this whole issue of where Innocence Canada comes into play. You're the co-president of Innocence Canada. What does Innocence Canada, in fact, do? And how do you decide when to take on an individual's case? Innocence Canada has a, an even larger battle than Mr. Olin had, for example. Uh, he was presumed innocent up to the point that he was convicted. And any reasonable doubt, which when I only briefly looked at the judge's reasons for, uh, for his decision on Friday when it came out, but he, he dealt with the issues of a reasonable doubt and some reasonable doubt that was raised by Mr. Olin's defense. Those options are not available to somebody by the time they get to Innocence Canada. They've already been convicted, so they're now presumed guilty. Right. The onus is on them to prove, not that they're not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but they have to actually prove innocence. And we, we renamed our organization a couple of years back. Uh, we, we used to go by the acronym AIDWIC, the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, which was long, cumbersome, and, and confused people a little bit. But we settled on the name Innocence Canada, because innocence is what we do. We only work with people who are factually innocent. We spend years trying to prove that they're innocent, and we do it across the whole nation. So Innocence Canada kind of represents exactly what we do. When do you we decide... Only look, I'm sorry, sorry Ron, Ron, when do you decide to take on a case? How, what, we, what? we have people apply to us. Sometimes it's lawyers, sometimes it's family members. Most often it's the individual man or woman themselves that has been convicted. Right. We can't look at the case until they've lost all their avenues of appeal. Okay. And sometimes that's years down the road. And, and the reason for that is the way we remedy cases after we study them and we're convinced that Mr. Assoon, for example, or Mr. Milgard, to use another example, are innocent, then we have to petition the federal justice minister to look at the case, convince uh, his investigative or her investigative body that there is a reasonable likelihood of a miscarriage of justice, then they refer it back to the jurisdiction from whence it came, Saskatchewan in Mr. Milgard's case, Nova Scotia in, in Mr. Assoon's case, and then they decide if there's going to be another trial. And that's up to the Crown, then, whether they proceed with another trial and try to reconvict the person, or sometimes, uh, as in the Milgard case, we actually identified the actual perpetrator led led to Larry uh, Fisher. Larry Fisher. Yeah. So, how many cases of wrongful conviction has Innocence Canada been involved with? Say in the last We've, twenty years. We we have succeeded in twenty four cases wow. of having homicide convictions overturned and a person's innocence proven. And I say that's a very uphill battle. It's a much tougher thing to do than to raise a reasonable doubt about somebody's guilt or innocence. But we've had 24 cases. Mr. Assume was our, our 24th case. We have another eight cases pending in front of the federal uh, justice minister at the moment, and there's another 60 files back in the office that we're working on. Now, we know all of those won't prove to be innocent people, but I suspect some of them will. It's alarming to hear that 24 people, 24 people, apart from the ones that, you know, I guess Mr. Assume is one of them, right? He is uh, one, yes. Yeah, so 24 people were convicted of murders they did not commit, and Innocence Canada's involvement led to their exoneration. It's, it's alarming to know that that number of people, and higher number more than likely, are inside Canada's prisons serving time for murders and serious crimes they did not commit. Well, in, in addition to the 24 that our organization has been responsible for, there have been others who have 
succeeded in having their convictions overturned and, and their innocence proven. There's another half a dozen of those. Yeah. But the, it is an alarming number. The other thing that you have to bear in mind is we only deal with the homicide cases, the most serious things where a person's liberty has been removed for life. And, and somebody is, in, in Mr. Soon's case and, and in Mr. Milgard's case, the perpetrator has been uh, out there free for 20-plus years continuing to commit crimes while an innocent person was locked up. We, we don't even deal with the lesser crimes. If you, I hate to even use the word lesser crimes, but the, the armed robberies and the breaking enters and all the other things where they get it wrong. Right. So we know the system is far from, far from perfect. Ron, we have, there is an organization like ours around. We, we have about a minute here, so I want people to have an opportunity to participate and to help Innocence Canada in its work. How does, and I asked you this last weekend, but two weeks ago, I'd like to, uh, to revisit this. How can people provide some financial assistance to Innocence Canada? What do they need to do? The, uh, go on our Innocence Canada website is, is the best place. There's portals there for donating time, uh, funds if, if you have them, and, and also for letting us know if you think you know of a wrongful conviction or if you know of something that might pertain to a wrongful conviction. But we're a, a nonprofit organization. We scrimp and scrape to come up with money. We hold bake sales. We, we do all kinds of things to, to raise money to do the work that the, the uh, criminal justice system does not do. Once, once cases have been through their appeals, there's no place to turn except to our organization. Okay, Innocence we're, we're Canada. We're the last hope for people. InnocenceCanada.com. InnocenceCanada.com. Ron, thank you so much for the time. And what you're doing is, uh, I mean, you're literally saving lives. Uh, it, it literally is. Yeah, it's very rewarding. It's uh, it's very challenging work. Like I say, it's, it's very time consuming. We worked thirteen years right. in Glenna Soon's case, and right. but it's we we find it worthwhile and, and rewarding for sure. And we Thank appreciate you. the time that the time uh, that you're giving us to get the word out. Well, it's good to talk to you again, and we'll do it again. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. All the best, Ronald Dalton. He spent almost nine years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Police charged him before the autopsy on his wife was completed. She died of uh, choking on a piece of dry cereal, and he was convicted of strangling his wife. I think Toronto is more together than it's ever been, and I think there's a variety of things that help with that. The aftermath of tragedies like this help as much as they're tragic. Uh, other things, whether it's in sports or otherwise, and what we're doing, I think, is successfully resisting, thank God, the kind of polarization that's going on elsewhere. There's the uh, mayor of Toronto, uh, John Tory, Speaking uh, on uh, this Sunday, the day before the first anniversary of that terrible, terrible shooting on uh, Danforth, Danforth Avenue in Greektown in Toronto, two dead, 13 injured, and uh, still many questions being asked. The gunman, Faisal Hussein, said to have had mental health issues for many years. Karen Lieberman joins us, reporter with Global News in Toronto. And uh, Karen, you were attending the uh, the service, the ceremony that took place earlier this afternoon. Can you describe that for us, please? What, what happened? Sure. So it was about a half an hour service uh, commemoration honoring the two young girls, Reese Fallon and Juliana Kozis, who lost their lives. Also honoring um, the, the courage of the 13 others who were wounded. Several of them were shot multiple times, actually, um, and a couple of them were there today. Um, and their families, and there were many community members who stopped as well at Withrow Park, and this is a park in the heart of Riverdale, basically just steps from, or blocks really, from where the, the shooting spree occurred last year, July 22nd, in the evening. 
And, um, you know, it was actually rather uplifting. Um, there was some beautiful music. The, the chaplain from the Toronto Police Service actually had everybody at one point in the half hour turn to their neighbors and introduce themselves. Um, and so it was kind of interesting. It was actually much more uplifting than I imagined. Now, there is another ceremony planned for tomorrow night, which would be about an hour before the actual shots were fired. The shots were fired around 9.55 on July 22nd. And um, at about 9 o'clock or just before when the sun sets, there's going to be another event. And that, I, I expect, will be a lot more emotional for people who experienced what happened firsthand. I think people really need this, don't they? They need this kind of uh, opportunity to connect and to to uh, to really honor those who were killed and the injured, and and to and to talk to one another and get to know one another again as a community after an event like this. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there was a lot of encouragement for people to mingle, to stay afterwards, even though the ceremony itself was only about 25 minutes, half an hour. Um, people did stay. A lot of the families got to, you know, embrace um, one gentleman who I've met with a number of times, just hours actually after the shooting happened. He was grazed by a bullet and he was with Reese Fallon when she died. And he uh, didn't know her. They were strangers, but he witnessed what happened to her. He himself, as I said, was injured. And I met with him at the six-month mark and then again interviewed him a couple days ago, um, Ali Dimarcon. And he came over to me after to tell me he was so relieved that he was finally able to communicate with Reese Fallon's family because for many, the morning has been very, very um, private. For others, this has been a, quite an isolating experience, actually, for Ali especially. And so he felt a sense of relief that he was able to meet her family, um, who really otherwise have not wanted to, to you know, be seen publicly because this is such a private thing for them. So, um, so yeah, it was really unique. Um, honestly, personally, I went this morning with my own children before work um, because people were asked to do, you know, chalk hearts and messages along the, around the park area where the event was taking place. And this actually is my own community. It's my neighborhood, too. So it was, yeah, it was quite special. And I think it's all about, you know, just taking back the Danforth, Greektown, which is such a, you know, a special part of the city um, after this horrible, horrible thing that happened a year ago. May I ask you this question? How do you explain what happened hmm. and why what's going on today and what's going on tomorrow? How do you explain, explain that to children as a parent? Oh, that's such a hard question. So um, I didn't tell them anything early on. My son's too young to understand. My daughter was five last summer, and um, and we did go as a family because I'd been there every single day reporting on it, um, and we did walk over. I, I believe it was the Taste of the Danforth, which is the big festival, which happened you know weeks after this horrible event, and the memorials were still up, and my daughter saw the pictures. She, again, was five at the time of the two girls, 118, 110, and sort of was drawn to the 10-year-old as another child, you know, who are those girls? And, oh, it's a tough one. I mean, I said, you know, a bad person did something really awful. And I don't know, I don't think that's probably the right thing to say. Maybe I still question it, but I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible Mm -hmm. without, you know, instilling a sense of fear. And I think that that's really what happened to so many people in this community is it did instill fear in anybody because if it could happen on the Danforth, it can happen anywhere. If it could happen in your neighborhood, in your backyard, you know, you question, are you safe anywhere in your city? Um, and so I kept it as basic as, as, as I could. And then this morning it was about, let's draw hearts and let's, let's 
show love to people who really need our love. And I think that that message got through to my kids today. I don't know. I don't know what else you say to children. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, and it's important. Far too young. Mm-hmm, it is, and they're far too young to understand. You know that that this man had two decades of you know mental health issues behind him. Um, that he had access to a gun. You know that there are guns on the streets. There's so many questions and. Oh, let them be innocent for as long as they can. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. So uh, tomorrow, today and tomorrow, the city of Toronto are coming together uh, and, uh, and paying tribute to the victims and, mm-hmm. uh, and and reestablishing your neighborhood as being what it's always been. And that's a, an integral part of a really a, a, go, a good place and a good time in Toronto. I think so. That's that's exactly what I think. And um, and people really seem to, to appreciate the ceremony. Yeah. I spoke with a number of the families afterwards, and everyone was actually quite touched. And, you know, it was short. It was sweet. Um, I'll add it's also a scorching hot day. People, the, a lot of seniors were present at the event. And so I think everybody really appreciated um, that this ceremony just struck the right chord with everybody. And um, But it'll be difficult tomorrow. And, you know, Reese Fallon's sister, Quinn, we, I spoke with her, and she said that this is actually the hardest time she's had. And the reason being is that it's been a year, a year without her sister. She's her best friend. So, you know, the anniversaries bring a lot of, a lot of, you know, feelings for so many people, different feelings. It's like it, un- it unlocks the emotional lock, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I think so. That's exactly what I think. Uh, let me just ask you a reporter's question. Now, what are some of the questions that still need to be answered? Unfortunately, based on, you know, the police report that we had got access to last month, there are, these are, there are questions that will never be answered. Um, that's really what Chief Mark Saunders said, uh, Toronto Police Chief, because, um, you know, even based on the lead detective, um, the investigation, you know, he was saying even an hour before this man went and got access to a firearm, nobody could have predicted that he was going to go on a shooting spree. Nobody could have predicted it, despite the fact that, of course, he had, um, you know, a lot of mental health problems, um, many, in fact, and there were many, you know, cries for help. Um, there was no there was no indication that he was going to be violent towards other people. And so, you know, it just, I don't know that the why will ever be answered for so many people. And, and so I guess it's just about moving on um, and moving forward. I thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. I can only imagine how emotional it was for you to be at the service and then take your children there this morning. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Karen Lieberman from Global News Toronto joining us um, from the Danforth. And you'll hear more about uh, what happened today of the service today and, of course, the events that are planned for tomorrow, the first anniversary of that terrible shooting. Just reading from the Global News story, police are asking the public for information as part of an investigation into a double homicide after two tourists were found dead in northern British Columbia Monday morning. The RCMP have identified the victims as Australian citizen Lucas Fowler, 23 years of age, and his girlfriend, China Deese, 24, of Charlotte, North Carolina. Officers are asking for the public's help in identifying a blue 1986 Chevy van with Alberta license plates that is believed to be connected to the murders. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network now is Nadia Stewart, video journalist with Global BC. And uh, Nadia, you're in the area. Thank you very much for taking the time. Can you describe to us, I mean, I talked about the Alaska Highway as being something people love to travel, Northern British Columbians being just so friendly. Can you 
describe for us where you are and uh, sort of set the scene for us? Sure, Roy. Thanks for having me. Um, we are right now actually in Fort Nelson, but we're heading back up to the area uh, where the the bodies of these two travelers were, were found. Uh, along Highway 97, particularly in, in this stretch, it, it's pretty remote. There's no cell phone service. Um, it's just a two-lane highway. And from what we uh, have gathered and, and from what we're hearing from witnesses, uh, they were just parked by the side of the road because their van had broken down. Uh, there isn't much of a pull out there, so it's just a, a gravel area. Uh, and unless another driver comes along, there, there's nothing happening for, for miles around. Now, I understand that you had an opportunity to speak to the tow truck driver who was... Uh, explain that to us. How, how was he involved? Yeah, that's right. That's John Wright uh, with Archie's Towing here in Fort Nelson. He got the call from his boss uh, that he was being dispatched out to this scene. Now, at the time, that was around Monday, last Monday at noon. He didn't really know what the call was about. It wasn't until he got out there that he realized that this was some kind of an investigation. Now, the RCMP wouldn't let him anywhere near the scene at first. He had to wait. They wouldn't let him uh, around to, to the back end of the van. Uh, but finally, when they let him in, he, he picked up the van and he was escorted uh, by police back here. Uh, we've also obtained some, some videos of the van and uh, not the ones that police have put out. We've got some new uh, new photos, sorry, of the van. And you can see that the back window, the rear uh, right-hand facing window of the van is either smashed out, it's missing. Either way, there's there's a black garbage bag. Uh, that's taped over that right-hand uh, window. I asked him um, whether or not he had any indication of what might have happened there. He said he didn't know. When he saw the window, all he could see was that it was missing, and, and that was that. Got to be tough on him, huh? Yeah, he's, you know, he says he drives this highway a lot. Um, and, and in spite of this, he still feels safe, but uh, he does have concerns. He says he thinks a lot about what might have happened, um, you know, they, people who live in this area are concerned um, for their safety, safety, particularly because they're not getting a lot of information from police. Uh, and there are some rumors not uh, coming from Canadian media, but from international media about what might have happened there. And I think that's leaving people feeling uh, just, just a little bit upset, a little, little bit unsettled. What are police telling you? Anything? Not much. Um, all they're saying um, is is that it, something clearly happened. Uh, they won't tell us uh, whether or not they've, they've honed in on a suspect, um, how far-reaching the search is. Right now, they're just putting out this appeal, again, for some dash canvas of anybody who might have been in the area last Sunday and Monday. Uh, in the area where this happened, there's now an electronic billboard uh, telling people, if you were here, these dates give RCMP a call. They need dash cam video. Um, other than that, though, police aren't saying anything. We checked in with them again today and didn't get much. Now, we were at the airport in Fort Nelson uh, to see as an RCMP plane arrived uh, with what appeared to be some more investigators. And there is a lot more activity up here at the um, the Fort Nelson detachment. Um, what? But other than that... Yeah, Nadia, yeah, what, quest what, questions, what questions do you want answered? You know... Particularly the question surrounding safety. Um, people are just worried about what, you know, what happened. If investigators have honed in on somebody, if they have a sense of what might have happened, I think the public just wants to know uh, where police are at, particularly because there's so much flying around out there. So if, if we could just know where police are at in this investigation, have you narrowed down a suspect? 
Um, and, and what kind of dash cam footage has already been submitted? Police have not given us any indication that someone has stepped forward uh, with any leads for them. What a terrible story, and it's, uh, it's uh, just awful. Young people, and, and that area is known to be friendly, and so many people travel that uh, that Alaska Highway every year. I keep saying that, but, uh, boy. Yeah, Thank, it yeah. is a very busy area. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadia. I really appreciate that. Of course. Thanks. Bye-bye. Nadia Stewart, a video journalist with Global BC. We'll find out more about that terrible situation in, in, in hopefully very, very quickly. And uh, Mr. Fowler's dad, a uh, police official in New South Wales, Australia. I understand two Australian detectives are uh, in Canada. They're not going to participate in the investigation with the RCMP, but they are in Canada. And his family are coming from Australia. I imagine Ms. D's family also from uh, the United States. The first uh, billion-dollar lawsuit by an athlete against his former team. Is that waiting to happen? Does Kevin Durant have a case against the Golden State Warriors? I'm going to speak now with Daniel Lust, sports attorney with the U.S. firm of Goldberg Segala. Remember, during the NBA championships, when uh, Kevin Durant came back for just a little bit of, what was it, game five? I think it was game five. Four? Game four. Um, And then had to leave the floor, and now he has an Achilles injury that's going to keep him out of the next season uh, could this lead to a major lawsuit, perhaps a billion-dollar lawsuit? Daniel Lust, sports attorney with Goldberg Sagala in the United States, joins us. Dan, thank you for the time. So the, your, your, your article, your column was titled, The Perils of Assuming an Unknown Risk, the Anatomy of a Billion-Dollar uh, Durant Warriors Lawsuit. Explain, please. I just uh, tried to get it all out there in the title and try to suck you guys in, and then, and then I lay in all the good stuff. Um, Roy, thank you for having me on this lovely Sunday. Um, so, so uh, b- basically, I know we'll jump into it. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, this would be a case that would be brought in the state of California, even though the accident happened in, uh, in lovely Toronto. Um, in the law, we try to figure out what, what you know venue has the closest nexus to this action. Um, so that would be California. That's where the Warriors were based. Uh, that's where the doctors were based. Um, so that's where it would start. Um, so uh, I guess first and foremost, Durant has three years to bring this lawsuit, three years from the date he tore his Achilles. Uh, had he brought this under Toronto law, this would be two years. It's just a difference of statute of limitations. So let's kind of jump into the, the, meat, you know, the meat of it. So um, the accident, uh, the, the, tor- the Achilles is torn on June 10th of 2019. As sports fans, um, we all kind of, I think, thought you know, w- that what Durant was going to be doing was a heroic action. He was coming back from this injury. He hadn't played. Um, but in the same sense, I think as human beings, we thought this was uh, maybe a little risky coming into free agency. I did, so for sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm from New York. I wanted him to come to my Knicks. I thought the, the risk far outweighed any reward. So, you know, with that, I think we all watched with bated breath as he took the floor. He played 12 of the first 14 minutes of the game after not having played for, you know, over a month. So that kind of raised some red flags. And the fact that he went down with almost a non-contact injury also just kind of weighed into the fact that maybe he wasn't ready. So that's where this lawsuit would be based. Um, the lawsuit's based on the fact that the Warriors doctors did not adequately um, advise him of the risk of coming back. So, um, you know, Roy, as sports fans, we, we watched that press conference that made a lot of waves in, in the States. Um, the fact that the general manager said to blame me, he got a little choked up. You know, Steve Kerr, you know, he wasn't sure what to say. Um, but really where this lawsuit comes about, and this is where you start filling out the elements, is on the evidence that has come to light since then. 
Um, and these are, uh, you know, in every legal action, you'd have sworn testimony from people that would be in the know, or maybe they'd be hearing it secondhand from, from someone. Um, so here I'm just going to look at two statements, and that's, you know, we, we really lay into whether these elements can be met from these statements. And then the next question is, how much could he sue for? So um, really principally, my article lays into it. It's the comments from Jay Williams' very close friend, another former basketball player, uh, Jay Williams. Um, it's, you know, he hosts Kevin Durant's show, The Boardroom. He got on Sports Center the following day, and he said three things that uh, you know we, I was paying close attention to as an attorney. He said number one, he believed that Durant was misdiagnosed, that it wasn't actually a torn, uh, you know, it wasn't actually a calf injury. Number two, he says that he knows for a fact that Kevin Durant was told by the Golden State Warriors that there was no chance that he could injure his Achilles. And if those two weren't enough, the reason why this this lawsuit could could really reach the billions, um, and why it's different from basically any lawsuit of its kind is Williams' allegation that the Warriors, at the time they rendered that diagnosis, at the time they told him this 0% risk assessment, the Warriors knowingly didn't have his best interest, Kevin Durant's best interest at heart, um, because they knew he had one foot out the door as an impending free agent. And at that time, um, you know, if they really had his best interest, what Williams says is they would have clearly put him on the bench. He hadn't been playing for a month. He didn't practice well the day before. You don't rush a guy back like that if you really think he has a future with the team. Okay. So um, now... So, so, yeah, yeah no, so, so, Dan, now, now you take the Durant situation, you compare it with Kawhi Leonard and, and the Raptors, mm-hmm. and load management. He set out games, he set out practices, he had injuries, and that allowed him to compete and perform at maximum level during the playoffs. So you, you have opposite situations. Um, could you speak to that? Just We have about a minute and a half. Speak to that, and then are we looking at a climate where perhaps going forward we'll see athletes suing their former teams, particularly athletes who were injured, saying, you didn't have my best interests in mind when you told me I was okay to play. Are we looking at a wave that could develop here? Yes, of course. So, you know, just in short, the reason you get to a billion and the reason why Kawhi Leonard's a great example is because these athletes now are making close to $80 million a year. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, that's how injuries happen. You look at what a guy loses in terms of his earnings, and that's, that's how you get that math. But for Kawhi, right, it, that's the NBA protocol. The team has to, you know, give their clearance, and also the player does. And if the player doesn't feel like he's ready to play, there's nothing that can force him to come back. And just as we saw with, with Kawhi, you know, when he was with the Spurs last year, um, he, he bet on himself. He goes, I, I don't really trust the, the Spurs staff here. I'm not ready to come back. And you just look at that situation versus Durant, who maybe took some advice from a team that didn't have his best interest. And you have two polar opposite scenarios. Kawhi's on top of the basketball world, on top of, you know, he's making tons and tons of money. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, Roy, Durant's not going to be playing for a year and a half. And the scary thing in all this and again, the reason that you're getting to a bigger question, if the team doesn't have your medic, your best interest at heart, and you go out and you tear your Achilles, I mean, your Achilles, unless your name is Dominique Wilkins, no player has ever returned to form uh, right. in the history of NBA basketball. Okay. And that's why Durant's injury is very scary. Fascinating, Dan. Uh, thank you for joining us. Daniel Lust, a sports attorney with Goldberg Gala. We'll talk again. I have a feeling there are going to be more lawsuits, and uh, not just maybe in basketball where players say, you didn't have my best friends in heart. You told me I could play, and look what happened. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Roy. Have a great, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. You too. Daniel Lust, sports attorney in the United States. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. And she talked about the evil. I think the comments made 
were hurtful, wrong, and completely unacceptable. And I want everyone in Canada to know that those comments are completely unacceptable and um, should not be allowed or encouraged uh, in Canada. Okay, so uh, that was the, the first clip, of course, that you heard was at the rally uh, for Donald Trump and the uh, crowd chanting, kick her out. Mr. Trump saying that he didn't approve of that. Uh, other than that, he sort of went back and was sort of vacillating on that a bit. And, and, um, and then Don, uh, Justin Trudeau was asked about Donald Trump's statements about the uh, four new congresswomen in the Democratic Party, and uh, you heard what Trudeau had to say. So uh, Donald Trump has been criticized roundly uh, by leading politicians and uh, from all sides of the political spectrum and in uh, different parts of the world. So I, I want to know what Dr. Zudi Jasser thinks about all of this. Uh, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and a former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander and uh, author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. Zudi, thank you very much for taking the time. I need some context here. What, what's your view of Trump's tweets and statements concerning the four new congresswomen known as the Squad? Yeah, I have to tell you, uh, Roy, uh, you know, I, I don't get it. I don't get what, uh, you know, the the Ilhan Omar in the far left uh, uh, will always cry racism, will even though uh, uh, coming to America is a choice. Uh, most of uh, our families made this decision as a choice. It wasn't based on racial issues. And uh, there's always been a sentiment in America, love it or leave it. Uh, there's bumper stickers that say that. Uh, so, yeah, you know, when a crowd is chanting, send her back, that's a bit gross and that's not American. Uh, but uh, that's a small element of really what was the sentiment of President Trump's tweets, which are here you have a representative that uh, is really a byproduct of the Islamist mindset that's working with the far left, that really looks at America as a force of evil, not as a force of good. Uh, she called our troops terrorists, uh, those of us who serve in Operation Restore Hope, uh, and yet ignores the terrorism of al-Shabaab, ignores uh, the uh, true ideological threats, uh, uh, has demonized Israel, uh, now this week actually tried to introduce a resolution pro-PDS, which is a boycott, divest, and sanctions movement that really is doing, uh, seeking to do away with Israel completely, which is uh, grotesquely anti-Semitic. So, you know, for those who think that uh, uh, criticism of her is racism, you're really uh, uh, tying your hitch, if you will, to the far-left extreme of the Democratic Party and, and of the left, and really ignoring some of the core sentiments you know, Roy, we have this conversation every day in the Arabic community, which is when people start complaining over and over about uh, America, I say, you know, well, why are you here? You choose to be here every day. America is a choice. Your family came from Syria, Egypt, wherever it might be, then go there and uh, complain about their government if you don't really like the country that you're in. I was thinking about you when I first heard all of this start to develop because, and, and when Ilhan Omar's name started to become really uh, prominently talked about, and I was thinking about you because your story and her story are very similar insofar as your families came from other parts of the world, your family came from Syria to the United States, and you're both first-generation 
Americans. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, yeah, and, and that story difference is sort of the diversity. That's what diversity of uh, who we are is about. We're not just all immigrants, all black or white or, or all Muslim. Uh, there's a diversity of experience. Her experience uh, is not, you know, when she visited Somalia last year, she was meeting with the heads of that government and ignored the fact that it was uh, one of the most corrupt regimes on the planet. And my family is still seeking to, to change, uh, to, to be part of the revolution against tyranny and advance democracy and freedom. And her narrative is about social justice and how the, the West is the problem globally with social justice. My family's narrative is about the fact that the most moral fighting force on the planet are Western militaries and, uh, you know, our American military, which is why I serve. Uh, you know, so, yeah, America has its faults. It's not a perfect democracy. I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't be critical, but the question is the cup half full or is it majority half empty? And our narratives are very different of the lens we look at it. And by the way, the technique she's using and the left uses is gaslighting. They constantly gaslight Americans, gaslight President Trump and say, oh, you're a racist, you're a bigot, etc. And then avoid these issues that you and I always talk about. What's the fallout here, Zudi? What happens now? Because, you know, significantly... Well-known Republicans have have challenged and criticized Donald Trump. We have the constant butting of heads between the Republicans and the Democrats uh, heading into the uh, the election season and the primaries. What what's going to what's the fallout of these uh, situations, events, and developments in the U.S.? Well, I think the left is overplaying their hand. I think uh, they're seeing now as she presented resolutions for BDS and, and other elements uh, that they're going to either have to abandon, uh, as Pelosi has tried to do, and now she's being called uh, a, a racist and others. So there's going to be some internal fighting uh, on the left, which will settle out. And I think ultimately uh, the narrative and the conversation in America will continue uh, about uh, what lens do we look at immigration? Uh, does Having a secure border mean you're anti-immigration or you're pro-immigration, but just anti-illegal immigration. I mean, we even saw our own senator here in Arizona, who is pretty far left, endorse a resolution calling to deport people over 20 days that have illegitimate asylum seeking. So now you see some Democrats beginning to line up behind some very legitimate concerns because the people who are here for real reasons seeking asylum are being marginalized while the, the radicals coming here exploiting our system uh, are becoming front and center. And I think that narrative is going to be more uh, central, despite all the noise of the racialization and infantilization of many of the uh, members of Congress, including Ilhan Omar. I've always been a fan of the United States, and it started out when I was a kid in Europe, and I... Uh... And I was when you were a little kid. Uh, it was the, it was the rock and roll music, and then uh, the you know jeans and the way the people dressed in the U.S. We all wanted to do to dress the same way. We wanted to listen to the same music. We wanted to have the same appearance. Uh, I've always been a fan of the United States. And when when somebody says to me about you know the, the Americans are this and the Americans are that, I always say to them, how many people are are trying to get into the United States? And how many people are jumping into rowboats trying to leave the United States for Cuba, for example? Well, that you know that speaks to me about what the United States always has been, and 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 is. And if I go to New York City, for example, I'm going to the most diverse city in the world. 
I, I just, I just, I, I look at the United States as as a country. I, I wonder. I, I have some concerns about uh, about uh, whether it, it's it's on the brink of racial conflict. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But but I look at the United States as still being the uh, most solid friend and defender that we have. If we need somebody to get our back, it's going to be the Americans. So, thanks for your service. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, so many of the Hollywood folks said that uh, they were going to go to Canada. And yet, uh, you know, we love Canada. It's part of the, the strength of Western freedom and democracy is our relationship and our alliance. And yet none of them who said they were going to leave the U.S. and go north or elsewhere did actually leave it. As Breitbart said, uh, Andrew Breitbart, when he was alive, he said, politics is always downstream of culture. And right now, we're, I don't think it's a civil war, I think, but we are going through a cultural conflict about America's identity. And uh, I think it's becoming clearer what those sides are. Yeah, that crowd was out of line, though. True. I, I could not agree more. But, you know, as Andrew McCarthy wrote in National Review yesterday, uh, you know, there are many things chanted here and there in, in, in various crowds. Uh, uh, did they really mean send her back? Uh, uh, they say they yell, kill the umpire in baseball games, and nobody really means that. Uh, so there are things that are just said because of uh, ops, if you will, but uh, aren't really meant. Nobody would ever act on that. Always good talking to you, Zudi. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Thanks. Dr. Zudi Jasser, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, past president of the Arizona Medical Association, is a nuclear cardiologist, and uh, was a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. His book is Battle for the Soul of Islam. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.